Thank you, choir. It is good to be among you on this Founders Day, this place, and among a people that shaped my own life uh, so profoundly. Janet, you may be correct that no one here is 143 years old, but my children would want to say that about me. It is one of the blessings of having teenagers, you know. Um, it is a um, pleasure to be with you and already to greet some folks um, from my common past uh, and look forward to more handshakes and hellos and greetings in Smith Hall afterwards. I can't wait to tell my identical twin daughters that I guessed Kevin and Carrie right off the bat. They will be proud of me. Uh, and I'm hoping next week that you'll get a chance to uh, meet them. Uh, but that depends on volleyball playoffs in North Carolina. Uh, they are on, their team was on the cusp of making it, but it looks like to make it they're going to have to win their conference tournament, which may be a tall order, especially given the fact that the tallest hitters we have are 5'8", and that one of my daughters at 5'5 five, five sometimes plays the front line, and at least two of the teams will have to be, have several six-footers, so it may be a long shot. So they hopefully will be here next week. I also want to say to you... Um, that I'm pleased that you will be hearing from Guy Sales on a regular basis in the months ahead. Guy is a friend uh, and colleague, and you will be pleased with the ministry that he will bring you from the pulpit in the months ahead. Um, both Mike Queen and I can vouch for Guy, so we think you're in good hands. Um, you will find him to be a voracious reader and insightful and an excellent preacher and having a listening ear. Let us join together for a moment of prayer. O oh, gracious God, we come to you with all that we are, bringing with us all that we have been and all that we have hoped, realized or unrealized. May in this time of worship, the gathering of us as individuals in the context of worship and in your spirit become united in a mysterious and sacred and holy way. Speak to us in ways that we can hear and open us to receive it. In the Christ we pray. Amen. Many years ago, when I was working as a seminary intern at a church, I was doing a series of lessons with the teenagers, with the youth of that congregation, on self-identity, always a great youth topic. And one of the sessions dealt with family influences and siblings and parents, and they were scoring themselves on a personality test, you know, the kind where you answer a bunch of uh, multiple-choice questions, they, you can add up the things, and they tell you uh, revelations about yourself. The room was quiet for a solid five minutes because nobody likes naval gazing like teenagers. When all of the sudden, the silence was broken by one high school senior who blurts out, Oh my gosh, I'm just like my mother! <laughs> At which point, part of the group, like you, burst out laughing, although most of them are middle school, high, middle school boys. And another significant group 
kind of rushed to her aid, most of them kind of sensitive high school girls, they heard the horror in her voice. Now, I knew her parents. They were good folks, faithful to the church, upstanding citizens, friendly, outgoing. But, and we didn't have a name for it then, but today they would be called helicopter parents, always hovering. And Diana chafed under her mother's watchful eye. She was four months from high school graduation and was counting the days till she would be off to college and out on her own, at least partially, out from under her mother's thumb. And here she read, she wasn't going to get out from under her mother's thumb. She was her mother. This was a disturbing revelation to her. And in the weeks following, she and I spent some time talking about, although I've forgotten after nearly 30 years what that was about. I only remember I told her, it's just a silly personality test. It's not your destiny. Fast forward a decade. At this point, I was a pastor in Charlotte, and on one particular Saturday, had to get an item uh, at a specialty shop and was in a part of town I don't normally frequent. And I was leaving the store. There she was, coming into the store. We hadn't seen each other in, in about a decade. We greet one another. She's now married, has two children, has her baby with her. I ask about her parents, her siblings, how she's doing with her family. It was a pleasant conversation. And in the midst of that, she said her three-year-old, her older, had just started preschool. And Diana was volunteering at the preschool one day a week. So, she said, she could keep her eye on the teachers <laughs> and make sure they were teaching the children correctly and caring for her daughter. I just smiled and nodded. We exchanged emails, said goodbye, hugged, and went off on our way. But as I left the store, I thought back to that youth meeting a decade before and said, yep, just like your mother. <laughs> when it comes to family, the DNA we pass on one generation after another, the traditions and the nurturing that we embed into our children and grandchildren. The past is in the future. And the future had already been in the past. This morning, four generations of the Shields family read three brief parables in which the kingdom of heaven is imagined as some sort of treasure. And then Jesus says, Therefore, every scribe that has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Each of the parables focuses on discovery. A farmer is plowing in his field and discovers a buried treasure. A merchant discovers a pearl of great beauty. A fisherman discovers a great school of fish caught in his net. 
they all discover something new. But in the first two cases, the new thing was something old. A treasure buried a long time ago. A pearl that had been cultivated by an oyster for a long, long time in order to grow in size and luster. And then the third parable, although the fish were not something old, in the third parable, the fisherman goes through and picks out that which he wants to keep and lets go that which he doesn't. And so, Jesus says, the one trained for the kingdom of heaven will bring out the old and the new. Whether we are talking about family generations or institutions or human history, the past and the future are linked in ways that defy simple explanations. This congregation today is celebrating Founders Day, and at a particular time, it is at this hinge moment of past and future. Last week, you recognized the faithful service of Alan Reasons to this congregation, and recently you selected the search committee that will find his successor. Hinge point between past and future. Conventional wisdom often notes the connections of past and future, but oftentimes in contradictory ways. Emerson once wrote, that the creation of a thousand forests is found in a single acorn. The poet-philosopher musing on how we are connected millennia then continued, and Egypt, Greece, Rome, Gaul, Britain, America were all folded in that first human. Likewise, the callous political calculator Prince Machiavelli once advised, whoever wants to foresee the future should look at the past. For human events ever resemble preceding times. And yet, Churchill famously said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So are we doomed to repeat the failures and successes of previous times? Or as Churchill backhandedly hoped, can we chart new courses by learning from our histories? think about this another angle. I'm curious, talking about past and future, how many of you have seen one of the Back to the Future movies? Maybe you saw it in the movie theater years ago, or you've seen it on TV. Raise your hand if you've seen at least one of those movies. That's, yeah, that's at least two-thirds. Anybody seen all three? You've seen all three? That's still a good bit, yeah. Recently in my family, we all went to see The Martian in movie theaters, and saw advertised in movie theater that, that the second Back to the Future is coming back out on the movie screens, at least in Charlotte. don't know if it's coming back to Huntington. But um, I'm guessing, because I 
haven't read about this, but I'm guessing it's because the second one in the future was supposed to be this year. Yeah, 2015. Yeah. We didn't get the flying cars, you know, right. But I was thinking none of us when we saw that back in the 80s really thought we'd get flying cars in 30 years. Although I am really disappointed about the hoverboard. I really thought we could get the hoverboard in 30 years. If you saw those movies, do you remember how they ended? The DeLorean, the time-traveling DeLorean, which, by the way, those movies kept the DeLorean in history that otherwise it would have been forgotten. Remember, the DeLorean had been smashed to pieces on the train tracks, and Marty McFly, paid by Michael J. Fox, thought that he would never see his beloved science teacher, Doc Brown, ever again. When suddenly lights begin flashing and sounds bang and boom, there is a time-traveling train which Doc has brought back from the past and from the future and he is there with his new wife, Clara, and their children, Jules and Vern. <laughs> that was cute, wasn't it? Artie's girlfriend hands Doc a piece of paper. She says, Dr. Brown, Dr. Brown, I brought this back from the future and it's been erased. It's blank. Of course it's been erased, Doc says. But what does it mean? It means your future hasn't been written yet, Doc says. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one, both of you. And thus ends the trilogy of top-selling movies that were targeted to teenagers and young adults. What other message were they going to say than your future is whatever you make it? Isn't that what we hope we can say to our kids? But is that true? Is it true that our future can be whatever we make it? Or are we, as Diana feared, doomed or blessed to be just like our parents? Or is it like Churchill stated, that if we learn from our history, we can chart a new path? I had in my manuscript that you can't walk from the fellowship hall to the narthex in the back of the sanctuary without being surrounded by history. I found out that is no longer true, at least temporarily. But I am pleased to know that when the renovations are complete, that that wing of the hall will be renamed Heritage Hall, right? Did I get that correct? And all those pictorial histories of previous pastorates will be reframed out in that hallway. I remember as a kid walking that hallway between Sunday school and worship under the watchful gaze of our previous pastors. And I imagined, as an elementary kid, looking up at those black and white photos, that they were saying to me, Don't talk in church, Tim. Be good. I'm sure Dr. Walker was a delightful person. But his picture never depicted that to me. <laughs> I 
I was amazed over the years, looking at those pictures over and over again, at the tenures of the pastors of our congregation, in which most of them were long-tenured pastors. I think only three or four were less than ten years. But of course, growing up here, I just thought that was the way it is, you know. That's what happens at every church. It wasn't until I went off to college and on our own that I found out how astonishing that is. Now, when Mike Queener is here next month and Guy Sales begin, you ask them how rare that is for a congregation of nearly 150 years to only have about four pastorates to serve less than 10 years. It is rare. And it says something about the community that gathers as Fifth Avenue Baptist Church. But you have to answer, what does it say? What is it about this community that creates long pastorates? Of course, they're not always guaranteed. There's some short ones on those boards when you put up the portraits you can see for yourself. And you may remember that we had a close miss when Dr. Smith came. I'm not sure if we're really allowed to talk about this stuff, you know, but it's 40 years old. I'm a guest preacher. Like, you know, guest preachers can say whatever they want to say. Now, most of you may not remember that. You weren't here at that time. And I was 16 at the time with a vague but powerful impression of what happened. The search committee had done a thorough job and brought a candidate from Pennsylvania. There was a meet and greet time on Saturday and then Sunday he was to preach. He brought his family with him and that and we would vote the following Sunday, a week later. And I can't remember if it was Saturday night or Sunday night, but there was an event with the teenagers together and his Children, his teenagers were also involved. I think maybe the FAB singers sang. Because in my vague recollection, we were not in the fellowship hall or in Fab Lab, but someplace else. And I met his daughter, who was exactly my age, and she was strikingly beautiful. And she talked to me a really long time. I mean, much longer than John Matt or Jim Mitchell or Mark Tarter. You know, I knew that. And she smiled a lot when she talked to me. So as far as I was concerned, the Holy Spirit said this guy was to be our pastor. (laughs) So I was somewhat dismayed when my parents were not so impressed and that other adults had similar thoughts. And sometime between those Sundays, he withdrew his name, possibly saving us from a contentious Sunday. And the search committee went back to work and a few months later brought Dr. Smith to us. And like the rest of the congregation, I was impressed with his trial sermon with us. But what really impressed me was Rachel, who was also 16. I was like, thank you, Jesus. Took one away. Brought it away. And thus was the beginning of a fabulous 20-year ministry in this congregation, and for me, a relationship that profoundly changed my life. But I'm thinking, other than the fact that we were not a congregation of 16-year-old boys, what saved us, what saved us 
from a near miss and blessed us with a fabulous 20-year ministry. What is the spiritual alchemy that happened in our history that year? I want to take you to an odd place in the Bible. The book of Revelation, a text which either is read a lot by certain Christians or hardly ever at all by certain Christians, and we tend to be the congregation that hardly ever reads that. But at the beginning of that book, it is a text written to seven churches in what is now modern Turkey. And the author individually writes to each of those seven churches. But when he addresses each church, he talks to the angel of each church. As if each of those congregations had their own spirit or their own essence. He didn't write to the individuals of those churches, but to their collective wisdom, their angel. I think that is significant. And I'm wondering, what is the angel of Fifth Avenue Baptist Church? What is the collective wisdom of this congregation that is beyond the individual sums of its members? What is the legacy that is passed down from generation two generations captured in those pictorial histories that you will soon return to that hallway. Perhaps it was the angel that saved us that year. Which should be a relief to the current search committee. Should relieve some of the pressure. Darren and Don and the rest of the committee, you know, there's an angel, see, working here. It's not all on you. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. The prophet Isaiah spoke to the people of Israel at a time when they were in exile in Babylon but who now were at a hinge point as well. For they had the opportunity to return to their homeland. You heard three generations of the Wilmick family read those words for us, words originally spoken to people who were hungering for a new beginning. The Lord, the prophet said, will make Israel's wastelands like the Garden of Eden. But those, those who would pursue that, those who would receive that, he said, must look to the rock from which they were hewn, from which they were cut out of. For to walk in the future, they must look to the past from which they were cut out. Now this Isaiah had already done this. I say this Isaiah 
because we do not know this prophet's name. The original scroll of Isaiah ended in chapter 39. It was written by a prophet who lived in Jerusalem around 700 B.C. And he tells us a lot about himself. He has a great story about his call in the sixth chapter of Isaiah. But somebody else wrote on that scroll, prophesied in his tradition, this one who said these words. You can read Isaiah and in the 30s can see that and then see the complete break in chapter 40, a completely different style of writing, a completely different message for a different time in a different context. But this Isaiah, this Isaiah rooted his prophecy in his spiritual history, in his inspirational mentor. He used many of the same metaphors, used some of the same references and images. And I think he didn't tell us anything about himself because he wanted the focus to be on that history. So it is not surprising that he told the Israelites they should look to their history to go to the future because this prophet had gone to his history in order to write in his present day. Look to Abraham, your father, he says, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, and I blessed him and made him many. This Isaiah was recalling the promises of God made to Abraham and Sarah back in the book of Genesis. Promises to give Abraham's descendants a land of their own. A land that they were now being called to repossess. But I think, The good news here is in what he did not say. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, he said, then look to Abraham and to Sarah, all fine and good. But then he stopped there with the history lesson. He did not say, look to Moses who gave you the law. He did not say, look to David, whose descendants I have given the throne in Jerusalem. That's a huge gap. Moses is kind of big in the Old Testament. David too. In fact, if you look in the whole book of Isaiah, Moses and the law are barely ever mentioned. When Isaiah was calling the Israelites on their way to return home, to reclaim their land, to claim a new future, when he told them to look to the past, he was telling them to choose their past. Critics might say Isaiah was revising Israel's history by only emphasizing one part of it. That's code language these days. We don't like to talk about revisionist histories. But all history is revisionist. We all revise our memories and our histories and our past based on our perception of what that is. If you don't think so, get into an argument with some Southerners about the Civil War. Very different perspectives 150 years later about what that was about. 
the Israelites needed to remember God's gift to the land, to Abraham, and to inspire them to risk everything. By now it had been three generations, 75 years since they had been there. They would have to risk everything, drop everything, lose everything to go back and to reclaim the land. And what they needed was empowerment. They didn't need to hear about the law that Jeremiah said they broke. They didn't need guilt and failing to take the land again. And so Isaiah said, choose your past. During this transitional period between pastors, I encourage you to think about this congregation's past. When you finish up the renovations and you replace those pictorial histories of pastorates, take time to look at them. To remember who we were and what we did. To look for the common threads that are there weaving through those stories and those pictures. And talk to one another and talk to the search committee. And then choose the past that you need for the future. That's always how we make our day our day. When we choose our past, we are free then to live our future. That's how we gain our own identity from our parents, to recognize what they have given us, but also that which we will claim for ourselves and that which we will let go. Being aware of the influences of the past, but then like the fishermen in Jesus' parable, choosing what we will keep and letting go what we wish to let go. That's how nations and societies learn from history. And that's how the angel of churches carry on their legacy. May you choose your past with clarity and live into your future. Amen.